like many Pixar movies onward, is a playful adventure story. I'm sure you could tell that from the trailer. It's entertaining, it's fun to watch, but it also has a number of powerful themes, faith-based themes that I think are worth reflecting on. It's, it's a story of two brothers who are very different from one another, but, but they learn to partner together on this quest, right? Uh, it's also a story of pursuing a father who they can only see in part. Uh, but the theme that I really want to reflect on is the one that this trailer of the movie really highlights, right? It starts off, in times of old, the world was magical, but times change, right? <laughs> this theme runs through the whole movie, right? This is the conflict that actually exists between the two brothers. Uh, and it's also the reason why their father is, is only able to be partially seen. This movie is really about two different ways of being in the world. One of them is living in the world with an openness to magic, to adventure, and the other one is living in the world as if we've all grown past that childishness. Or to put it another way, one is to live in an enchanted world, and the other is to live in a disenchanted world. And this is the language that Christian philosopher Charles Taylor uses to describe the world that we are living in now. Now, don't be confused by the language of magic or enchantment. Though the Pixar movie might be, Charles Taylor is not talking about witches and wizards and stuff like that. Rather, he is talking about spiritual reality. This is what he means by enchantment. He says that in the past, the world was seen as essentially enchanted, meaning people were open to the reality of the spirit and the presence of God. But in modern times, the world is seen as disenchanted, meaning the people are no longer open to spiritual realities or even the existence of God. And though we might think this is really just a modern phenomenon, these two ways of being have actually been around for quite a long time. It's actually what our psalm is about today. So go ahead and open up to Psalm 14. Psalm 14 is where we're headed this morning. The psalm, like Onward and Charles Taylor, the philosopher, explores two different ways of being in the world. One with an openness to God and the other with a disregard for God. It shows us what these ways of living look like. So let's read together. Psalm 14, beginning in verse 1. Fools say in their hearts, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on humankind to see if there are any who are wise who seek after God. They have all gone astray. They are all alike perverse. There is not one who does good. No, not one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they shall be in great terror. For God is with the company of the righteous. 
You would confound the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that deliverance for Israel would come from Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that this world that we live in is enchanted with the presence of your spirit. I pray that as we consider the words of this psalm, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and give you my outline for today, just so you can follow along if you're a note taker, that sort of thing. We're going to talk about the way of the fool, the word of the gospel, and the will of God. The way of the fool, the word of the gospel, and the will of God. Now, I'm not going to tell you exactly what each one of these means just yet or how they all fit together, but you'll understand more as we go along. But for now, that's the roadmap for where we're headed. So let's start by looking back at the psalm together. Psalm 14 opens up by describing the way of the fool. It says, fools say in their hearts, there is no God. So immediately we can see that we're talking about the ideas that we started with, right? The question of living in an enchanted world versus a disenchanted world. The difference between someone who says there is no God, as in verse 1, and someone who seeks after God, as in verse 2. Now, with our modern mindsets, when we hear the opening words of this psalm, we probably think that it's ultimately talking about what people believe, right? Talking about what people intellectually acknowledge. Do they believe in God or not? And this is often the way that we define atheism, right? People who don't believe in God, people who don't intellectually acknowledge the existence of God. But if we continue reading the psalm, we'll see that the psalmist's definition of atheism is not intellectual, but rather practical. As we continue reading about the way of the fool, as the psalmist describes it, we don't see statements of belief and disbelief, but rather we see a series of attitudes and actions. And so the way of the fool is not about intellectual atheism, but rather practical atheism. Take a look. The rest of verse 1, the psalmist goes on to say, they are corrupt they do abominable deeds. Verse 3 says they have gone astray. They are perverse. Verse 4 says they are evildoers who eat up my people and that they do not call upon the Lord. Verse 5 says they confound the plans of the poor. All of these descriptions, I think, can be summed up in about three things. Corruption, oppression, and a lack of intercession. Corruption, oppression, and a lack of intercession. They deceive themselves, they oppress others, and they ignore God. So the atheism that the psalmist is talking about is not primarily whether or not people believe in God, 
but rather whether or not they follow God. And these are different, right? It is one thing to believe in God and maybe go to church or something. It is quite another thing to follow Christ and seek after him in all things. And this is why, after explaining the way of the fool in the psalm, the psalmist goes on to make this sweeping statement. There is no one who does good. And it's emphatically repeated in verse 3, there is no one who does good. No, not one. And with these sweeping statements, the psalmist moves from being a poet to really being a prophet not only lamenting that the Gentiles out there who do not believe in God, but also beginning to criticize his own people who are not following God. This statement, there is no one that is good, harkens back to the story of the flood or the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, except this time there is no Noah. This time there is no Abraham or Lot. The psalmist's proclamation is all encompassing. No one is good. No, not one. This applies to pagan nations. It applies to the people of God, and it applies to us today. And this was Paul's point in his letter to the Romans. This is the point that he makes throughout that. Flip over to Romans with me, but, but keep a bookmark or something in the psalm, because we're going to come back to it. All right, but flip over to Romans here. This is the part where we transition, right, from that first part, the way of the fool to the word of the gospel. I want to take a little walk through Romans together because among other things, Romans is kind of an exposition of Psalm 14. It's kind of Paul's commentary on this psalm. I want to show you some ways that it pops up throughout the letter. Now, Paul does open the letter rooted in the word of the gospel, right? In the first 17 verses of Romans, he uses the word gospel five times. He says this over and over again. Uh, this is what it is rooted in. This is the story that Paul is going to be telling, the story of the gospel. But very quickly, after setting up the gospel in the opening verses, Paul begins to set the stage with reference to Psalm 14. Because just as the psalm began with a declaration about fools turning away from God, in Romans chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Paul writes, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal human beings, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. And Paul goes on, just like the psalm, to describe not their intellectual beliefs, but rather their corrupt attitudes and actions. This is practical atheism. And then in chapter 2, he shifts from talking about the godlessness of Gentiles to talking about the transgressions of the Jews. Though they believe in God, they fail to follow him. And then in chapter 3, Paul gets back to quoting Psalm 14. And in verse 9, he writes, Both Jews and Greeks are under the power of sin as it is written, and then he quotes it, 
There is no one who is righteous, not even one. So all of this Paul is setting up with Psalm 14, having set the stage with that all-encompassing proclamation from the psalm, the way of the fool, Paul then continues by telling the story of the good news, the word of the gospel. And it is a story. In chapters 4 through 11, Paul retraces the story of Israel showing how it is fulfilled in Jesus. And all along the way, we don't see a disenchanted world where God is distant or absent, but rather a deeply enchanted world where God is present and active. And so this is the story that Paul tells in chapter 4. Paul begins the story with Abraham, who God promised to make into a great nation who would become a blessing to all nations. In chapter 5, he expands the story where, in verse 14, he refers to Adam, who came before Abraham, and then Moses, who came after Abraham. And Paul even hints at what the end of the story is going to be when he says, again, this is in verse 14 uh, of chapter 5, that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Meaning that this story of Adam and Abraham and Moses will ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus. And that's precisely what he goes on to narrate. In chapter 6, Paul says that Jesus delivers his people from death through the waters of baptism, just like God delivered Moses and the people of Israel through the waters of the Red Sea. In chapter 7, Paul describes the wrestling war with sin, just like Israel wrestled with temptation in the wilderness. In chapter 8, Paul writes about the Spirit of God coming to dwell in and guide us, just like the presence of God came to fill the tabernacle and lead the people through the wilderness. And then chapters 9, 10, and 11 are a dense several chapters, but Paul continues to tell the rest of Israel's story. The people of God who turned away from God and were sent into exile, but ultimately they're brought back because of the nations, because of the places where they had gone. In other words, Just as the searing statement, no one is good, applies to all people, so also the word of the gospel is for all people, all nations. That's back to that promise to Abraham to bless all nations through this nation. And this is that gospel. This is what Paul is, has outlined throughout the book of Romans, chapter 1, all the way up to chapter 11. It is foolish to say that there is no God because from the creation of Adam to the call of Abraham to the covenant of Moses to the cross of Christ, God has been active in the world, pursuing people and making a way for them out of the way of the fool and into his perfect and pleasing will. And that's where Paul lands in chapter 
12. In chapter 12, verse 1, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the way out of foolishness, and it does involve our intellect as our minds are renewed, just like it said, but it also involves our actions and our attitudes as we present our bodies in worship. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Well, this brings us to the last point and that outline I gave you, the will of God, right? How do we receive the word of the gospel and follow God out of our foolishness and into his will that is good and acceptable and perfect well, let's flip back over to Psalm 14. Let's flip back over to Psalm 14. Hopefully you have that bookmark there. Because I think that if we take another look at this psalm, we'll be able to glean some wisdom for what this journey looks like out of foolishness and into the will of God. Now, as we look back at the psalm, I'll remind you what we observed earlier. There are essentially three ways that the fool is described in the psalm. In verse 1, they are corrupt. And in verse 4, they eat up people and do not call upon the Lord. So these are summarized as corruption, oppression, and lack of intercession. They deceive themselves. They oppress others and they ignore God. And these actions are precisely the opposite of what Jesus said were the greatest commands to love God, and to love others as ourselves, to love God and to love others as ourselves. So if we are going to be followers of Jesus, who have been saved by him, rescued by him, we need to find practices that root us in the love of God, of others, and even our own selves. Rather than corruption, oppression, and lack of intercession, we must pursue integrity, service, and prayer. So here are three practices to counter the way of the fool and follow the will of God. First, we need to counter corruption with integrity. Instead of self-deception, we need honest self reflection. If the fool says in their hearts, there is no God, verse one, then we need to take some time to look at our own hearts. And honest self-reflection will sometimes bring about some surprises. Now, self-deception can come in a couple of different ways. One of them is to think too highly of ourselves, to think that because we're good, enlightened moderns, or good devoted Christians, that we are beyond all that stuff about corruption and evil. But that's precisely what this psalm addresses. There is no one who does good, 
No, not one. And some honest self-reflection can begin to reveal the darkness that lurks beneath. The other way that self-deception can come to us is to think too poorly of yourself. This way means wallowing in self-pity and constantly refusing love. Now, you may be thinking, but, but the psalm says that no one is good, and, and it does. But there's a difference between guilt and shame. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt acknowledges that indeed no one is good. But shame insists that you are beyond redemption. Guilt acknowledges that no one is good, but shame insists that you are beyond redemption and unworthy of love. And the second form of self-deception ultimately rejects God just like the first one does. The first one refuses to acknowledge God's righteousness, while the second one refuses to receive God's love. And so instead of self-deception, we need some honest self-reflection. We need to look at our hearts and what do we find there? Is it pride? Or maybe it's shame. If we find either of these, we must uproot them and throw them away into the burning fire of God's love and God's grace. We must counter self-deception with honest self-reflection. A second practice, we need to counter oppression with loving service. Now, normally, this would be a great place to plug something about Wildwood or reach out, but as Mary shared in her slideshow a couple weeks ago, the pandemic has changed things about the way that, that we interact with those for the at least immediate future. So as a church, I think we need to spend some time looking around us and discerning who do we see experiencing oppression and how can we serve them during this season? There, there are still ways for us to stay connected to Wildwood, uh, and there are still ways to continue supporting Reach Out, but they may look different than they have in the past. And as we do this work of, of searching and discerning, there very well may be some new streets for us to begin crossing as a church. There may be some new ways to begin partnering for peace. There may be some new parts of the kingdom for us to begin discovering. And so I hope that, that we can find our way together as God leads us in his will. We must counter oppression with loving service. Finally, a third practice. We need to counter disenchantment with prayer. Just like the fools in the psalm and just like our own modern age that Charles Taylor wrote about, we are tempted toward the disenchantment that, that we started talking with this morning. Though we intellectually believe in God, we often fail to seek him. We often do not call upon him. Though we say we believe in God, we often live as if we don't. We must counter this 
disenchantment, with a commitment to prayer, pouring out our hearts to God and praying for the world and praying with others. The more we are devoted to prayer, the more we will be able to begin seeing the enchantment of everyday life and sense the presence of the Spirit in all that we do. So, so here's my challenge for you this week. These three practices, commit yourself to self-reflection, to service, and to prayer. For self-reflection, set aside some time to journal about your thoughts, your feelings, to honestly interrogate your attitudes and your actions. And if you're more of a verbal processor, then maybe reach out to a trusted friend for conversation or reach out to me. I would love to listen and to help you kind of talk through some of these things and self-reflection. For service, take some time to consider some ways that we might be able to cross the street during this season. It's going to take some creativity and, and some new ways of thinking. Uh, but, but take some time to, to enter into that and, and ultimately begin with service in your own life, right? Find a way to serve your spouse or a family member or a coworker at your job. Maybe it's sharing a word of encouragement. That, that can be a service to others. Or maybe it's doing some specific meaningful task. Get creative as you seek to serve in your own life. And for prayer, I just want to encourage you, as I have before, to spend some time with God every day, even if it's just five minutes in the morning and five minutes in the evening. Take some time to pray to God, to pray over the day that you're about to start or the day that you've just finished, to pray for others, both friends and enemies. I've continued to, to use the common prayer resource that we were talking about a couple of months ago, right? And it's been a rich way for me to spend time with God each day in both prayers of my own as well as guided prayers from that resource. I encourage you to continue using it if it's helpful. You can find a link to the website uh, in the resource section below uh, or download the app or get the book if it's helpful. Keep using that. Whatever it is, as we devote ourselves to these practices, self-reflection, service, and prayer, I hope that we might pray along with the very end of this psalm for deliverance, for restoration, and for rejoicing as we seek the Lord and his kingdom. Amen.